Well, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 18. We're going to be in verses 18 through 30. As you find your place, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Adam Kuntz, and I'm one of the student pastors on staff here. And for the chance to share God's Word with you this morning is something that I truly look forward to, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. Last time I preached, I was just days away from my wedding in late October, and now I stand up here married, three beautiful daughters, and a dog named after a dinosaur. So life is really, really fun. And it's hard to remember what life was even like before then, but it's been really, really great. And just to kind of dive in, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for quite some time. You may have walked in here and your Bible just naturally just falls open right to it. We've spent a lot of time in in the Gospel of Luke. But before we get to the passage, I want to set the stage as clear as I can today. I want to identify some common themes that we've seen weaved throughout the entire Gospel of Luke You may have picked up on some of it, and if you haven't, I just want us all to be on the same page with it. There's been this common theme that the kingdom of God turns everything on its head, upside down. It's an account filled with great reversals that Jesus came to accomplish and proclaim. There's so many reversals, stark contrast in this gospel account. It starts from the very beginning of Luke. I'm going to work through some of these and paint the picture that Luke is painting for us. And one of those contrasts is being that the son of Adam is the son of God. And he's come to redeem all humanity. Jesus, another one, identifies not with the rich and established, but Jesus actually identifies with the meek, the poor, the disenfranchised. Jesus proclaims that the poor are lifted up and the rich are brought low. The meek are exalted and the powerful are humiliated. Jesus' believers and followers were found not around the temples, like we would think, but among the demonized, the sick, the paralyzed, the marginalized and impaired. And then we enter into this travel narrative of Jesus. We've been in this portion of the gospel since the end of chapter 9, where Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And we see in this moment that Jesus, in this section, is constantly on the move. He doesn't stay in one spot very long. But he sets his face and he goes. And in Luke's gospel, Luke doesn't just go straight to Jerusalem. Instead, there's this meandering path with vague geographical references as Jesus moves from Galilee to a village near Jerusalem. Then he circles back to Galilee and then travels somewhere between Samaria and Galilee, and it continues until he gets to Jerusalem. On this journey towards Jerusalem, we find more upside-down and reversal imagery. Luke's gospel shares parables like a good Samaritan, a foolish rich man, where the exalted are humbled, the cursed are actually blessed, the prodigal is celebrated, the dishonest are commended. It's a fascinating thing to kind of look at the gospel of Luke from a bird's eye view and to see some of these common things weave together and all of a sudden it's just making a wonderfully beautiful gospel. So we're going to encounter a number of those contrasts and a number of those things where Luke is presenting this kingdom of God from Jesus and it turns everything upside down on its head. 
In our passage, we're going to encounter a lot of contrast today. I do want to give us our landing point, like the big idea before we do dive into the passage, which also plays into this stark contrast that Luke is painting here. And the big idea is this. In the kingdom of God, total surrender is where we find ultimate freedom. In the kingdom of God, total surrender is where we find ultimate freedom. Luke 18, verses 18 through 30, this is God's word. A ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told them, You still lack one thing. Sell all you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Then who can be saved? He replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, Look, we have left what we had and followed you. So he said to them, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife or brothers or sisters, parents or children because of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more at this time an eternal life in the age to come. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, the calling is high. It's lofty. But even then, Lord, what is impossible for man is very possible for you. And so, Lord, would you chip away at our hearts? Would you soften our hearts, Lord, and give us understanding of what we're about to sit under? Lord, may we truly count the cost and understand the gravity that's at stake here. So, Lord, we ask for your, your guidance, that your Holy Spirit would continue to stir our affections towards you, Lord, and that we would walk away from here, Lord, totally surrendered, Lord, to your word and your way. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke has a way of helping us see how Jesus is presenting an upside-down kingdom of God. The story of the rich young ruler does this, along with a host of other accounts here in this gospel narrative. And this particular story is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke's account of the rich young ruler is the only one that refers to the man as a ruler. Matthew's gospel alone tells us that this man is young, and other than that, uh, the separate gospel accounts all remain very similar to one another. So I want to revisit verse 18. It starts out saying this, A ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now the rich young ruler comes to the right person and asks the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, this is a great question. Not only is it a great question, but what better person to answer such a question like Jesus? 
I mean, I wish that people would just approach me and just say, Adam, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I'll gladly tell you that that is found through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I would love for it to be that simple. Based on how the question is stated, we can draw from the phrasing of the question that the rich young ruler assumed that there was some sort of work base or effort that has to be taken place because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do in order to attain this eternal life? I also want to take note how the rich young ruler addressed Jesus. He said, good teacher. On the surface, this seems like a respectable, somewhat decent thing to say. But to Jesus, the Son of God, this was a greeting that you would only say in relation to God. And he's asking about eternal life. So I would argue that this man is not saved. He's wanting to inherit eternal life and wants to know what he has to do to get it. Again, emphasis on what must I do to inherit eternal life. So this greeting, more than anything, is an attempt of flattery to Jesus. And we see Jesus' response to the greeting and the question asked. It's in verse 19. Look at it with me. He says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So right here, Jesus is inviting the rich young ruler to reflect on the question you just asked me kind of thing. If he truly understood the meaning of the word good accompanied with teacher, then he would essentially approach God himself and the way that he's doing that, he's approaching God with some sort of arrogance and right standing. Like, I can approach you and just simply ask. But that's not how we would think that this would be. If this guy were to really know and understand who he's approaching, he would not approach Jesus in such a way. But he would approach Jesus the way that we saw last week between the Pharisee and the tax collector. Where the tax collector could not even lift his eyes. He was beating his chest He had this posture, I can't even lift my eyes or my face because I need your mercy. I'm a sinner. But we see, again, the contrast of that. Hey, teach, what must I do to inherit this eternal life thing? I keep hearing everyone talk about it. What can I do? Jesus responds to the rich young ruler in verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. To which he says, I've kept all these from my youth. The ruler asks Jesus, what must he do? So Jesus answers in terms of doing. Jesus mentions five of the commandments as things he must do, to which the young man responds, kept them all. We're good there. I mean, I'm all for giving people the benefit of the doubt, seeing the best in people, thinking this young sap maybe is just trying the best he can, but he has to be totally and completely ignorant here. I mean, I can verbalize. I've spent 32 years on this earth, and I can say I've never actually murdered anyone except on Mario Kart Double Dash. I take names. I don't play nice. But Jesus turns the kingdom of God upside down here. It's not the fact that it's just, I need you to keep the commandments. It's that the commandments are holding 
a category in and of themselves. So Jesus and other gospel accounts will say, don't commit adultery. But also, if you lust after another, you've committed adultery in your heart. Not only is the commandment to not murder, but if you're angry towards another, you've committed murder in your heart. These commandments may appear to the rich young ruler just as a simple list, but like I said, these commandments stand for a separate category in and of themselves, and they require more than the rich young ruler cares to know. Every time a person looks at pornography, a commandment's broken. Every time you steal, you're not living generous the way that God asked you to live. You've broken a commandment. And all these commandments, all five of these commandments mentioned are commandments that pertain to humanity. These are horizontal commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother are commandments that we keep horizontally, relationally. And Jesus has yet to mention a single commandment that we are to keep vertically between the hearer and God. So the rich man seems to be under the impression he's good. I've kept these five commandments. He thinks he's in right standing. Give me something else to do so I can accomplish that and inherit this eternal life thing. We just saw an example of this last week in the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I'm not like this guy over here, this tax collector. We saw this heart also in the older brother in Luke 15. The rich young ruler is looking for the next level, the next thing that he has to do to level up. And don't forget, he's rich. He can get what he needs, and he also has access to anything he wants. He wants to know what he has to do to inherit eternal life. This is an interesting tension to find yourself in. I've seen this a lot being in student ministry. I'm coming up on 10 years in full-time student ministry, and to say that this specific tension is a challenge is an understatement. But for lack of better words, it's a challenge to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to students who have everything they could possibly need and have access to everything they could possibly want. And if they can't get it immediately, we are literally a click, a click away from anything and we have a two-day shipping guarantee that comes with it. But when a student has everything they need, when a student has access to everything they could possibly want and they see their need for a savior, it's totally an act of God's grace. That you would see your need for a savior in a world where you have everything you could possibly need and want. Seeing your need for a savior is something that we just don't wake up with. We just wake up, ah, oh, I think I just need a savior today. It's not something you conjure up yourselves or drift into. It's an act of God's grace that he would unveil your blind eyes and unlock your deaf ears to your need of a Savior. Money can't buy it. Behavior can't earn it. Eternal life with God is attained through faith in Jesus Christ, period. 
Eternal life with God is attained through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not through your church attendance. It's not through singing the loudest. It's not attained through a certain number of Bible studies you've completed. It's not attained through giving away everything you own even. It's also not attained through living a life of poverty and minimalism. Eternal life with God is through faith in Jesus for the payment of your sins. So, to bring us back to the young man's response. I've kept these commandments since I was a youth. Jesus' response is in the next verse, verse 22. Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. Jesus gives the young ruler one more thing to do. That's the way the man phrased it in the beginning anyways. What can I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? You've claimed to have kept the five commandments. Now I'm going to challenge you with the task that will reveal if I have your whole heart. Sell everything. Sell it all. Distribute it all to the poor. Your treasure isn't here on earth. Come to grips with that. And then come follow me. Up to this point in the story, this man is a potential disciple. The calling is out there. Hanging in the balance. And Jesus will gladly receive him. But the, will the rich man gladly receive Jesus? Jesus is waiting for a response. And there's no way for the rich young ruler to do as Jesus asked without requiring his whole entire heart. And little does the rich young ruler know that if he refuses or ignores this call from Jesus, it would be far more costly than the riches he's trying to preserve. After he heard this, verse 23, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. This is another contrast. This is another one of those things that is turning it upside down. We don't see this often in the Gospels. When a lost soul has a face-to-face -face interaction with Jesus and the lost soul walks away sad. This is not the norm. Normally, we see rejoicing. We see the healed proclaiming. And we see a zeal to share what has just happened and experienced. It's not common for us to read of an interaction like this and the person walks away with slumped shoulders and sadness. In Daniel Bach's commentary on Luke, he says that Jesus' call falls on functioning ears but on deaf hearts. It's sad because we've seen this play out. A heart that's unwilling to surrender fully is the heart that is so bound, grounded, and mastered by whatever. Fill in the blank. It doesn't have to be riches, but it was for this man. This man, not only did he have wealth, but his wealth had him. That shows itself in response to the call that Jesus gave. And like I said, the reality is that wealth is not the only thing that can master a person. It's not that you have things, but it's when your things have you. It's not that you have status. 
but it's when your status has you. It's not that you have power, but it's when your power has you. It's not that you have position, but it's when your position has you. There's nothing more sad than seeing a person give his or her life fully devoted to their life's work and they one day hit the bullseye of a target that doesn't even matter. It's like draining a shot from half court all to realize you shot at the wrong basket. Our hearts are so prone to wander and before we know it, we gave our life's work and time to things all the while neglecting the very heart that Jesus is asking of us. He doesn't want your things. He wants your heart. This man would say that he's kept the five commandments, but there is also a commandment that cannot be ignored. Do not have other gods besides me. Let's look at Jesus' response as the rich young ruler walks away. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A question I want to answer directly and while using God's word to direct our conversation is, why is it hard? Why is it hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And to answer that question, I want to revisit the passage from last week. So look up in your copy of scripture to verses 15 through 17. This is going to address the question that we just asked. Verses 15 through 17 of chapter 18 says this. Let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, get this, like a child will never enter it. Okay, so let's compare the two. We're contrasting, right? You have little children. And Jesus says, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Then you have the rich young ruler. He's declaring, what else is there for me to do? Name it and I'll do it. The heart posture of a child, think of it, is one that's totally dependent on their creator. A child, in every moment, cries out to their creator, feed me, Hold me, care for me, fix me, dress me, warm me, sustain me. And the rich, tell me what I must do. I'll do it. So when I, enter in, when I inherit the kingdom of God, I can know that it was my doing that brought me here. I think of the two heart postures, the little children and the rich young ruler. The kingdom of God. It's difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God because wealth can breed self-reliance. Therefore, the love of wealth does to our hearts the very opposite of that of a little child. Rather than to be a recipient of God in His grace with nothing to offer, nothing to show, just an arms up waiting for the loving Father to sweep us up, and the love of money can blind us from a heart that's totally dependent on the grace of God for the forgiveness of our sins. So, 
Jesus, in a way to teach and to get his point across, turns to the disciples and he says, it's easier for a camel, the largest animal in Palestine, to go through the eye of a needle, the most conceivable small opening. I mean, this contrast is laughable. You can't realistically think about a camel going through the eye of a needle, realistically. I do want to point out that the call to sell everything, give the proceeds to the poor, and to follow Jesus was to the rich young ruler. That is not the call for everyone. Wealth was this man's God. Wealth was something that he fused his identity to. Riches was what this man was totally dependent on. So are the the wealthy without hope? We have many examples in Scripture of those that were wealthy in the kingdom of God. Abraham, Boaz, Job, Joseph of Arimathea. They had wealth, but their wealth didn't have them. It's not only the wealthy that can think this way, though. I mean, you can live a life of poverty and nothingness, and you still have the thought, if only I had money, then, then I would be out of this mess. If only I had a little bit more. I wouldn't find myself in this predicament. You've probably heard it said that money is a wonderful servant but a horrible master. So let's turn the dial just a touch. Because there's something else that we need to address. For this man, his reliance was on his wealth. What is that for you? What's your self-reliance? If Jesus could put his finger on one area of reliance that's preventing you from fully, fully surrendering your heart to God, what would that area be? What would Jesus ask you to surrender that would make you walk away sad because you didn't know you could actually do it? What area of your life is least surrendered to God? Is it your family, your children? Maybe it is your financial security, your career, an addiction, your physical abilities. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, says this. He says, Many are ready to give up everything for Christ's sake, excepting one darling sin, and for the sake of that sin are lost forevermore. What is that for you? What have you made untouchable? What have you been pampering instead of slaying? You may think on the surface that the cost is too much to surrender at all, but I think the opposite is actually true. The cost is too great not to. We can look at the rich young ruler, sit back in our chairs, look at our neighbor and just say in utter disbelief, this guy doesn't get it. If he would just surrender his riches, the payoff is so much better. While at the same time, we white knuckle areas of our life that we won't allow Jesus to touch with a 10 foot pole. Don't ask me to surrender my time and my schedule. Don't even think about touching it. My addiction is mine and mine alone. It doesn't hurt anyone but myself. Is there anything that you love that is keeping you from God? 
Anything that you're unwilling to surrender, renounce, or give up for the sake of Christ. And those who heard this, verse 26, asked, Then who can be saved? The response that Jesus gave is shocking to the disciples. There's this cultural assumption that wealth was a blessing that comes directly from God. And now Jesus, turning everything upside down, wealth is bad now? So this leaves the disciples asking a very similar question that the rich young ruler asked. They're not asking, what do I do? But it's, who can be saved? Who is it? This has to be concerning for the disciples because not only is Jesus confronting that wealth makes entry into the kingdom difficult, but it's actually easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle. This has to rattle them. I mean, what do you mean, Jesus? All this time I thought you were blessing me. And now you're saying that it's going to be difficult for me to enter the kingdom? And it's also important to note that this question Who can be saved? And how it's stated is not just about the rich, but for all people. And we don't even know who asked this question. Scripture doesn't tell us. But it's not important as to who asked the question as much as we need the answer to the question. Who can be saved? Who can be saved? Entry into the kingdom cannot happen apart from salvation. You cannot separate eternity with God in His kingdom where He's ruling and reigning for all eternity and a heart that's fully surrendered and reliant on the saving work of Jesus on the cross for the payment of sins. Jesus gives us the hope we need in the next verse. Let's read it. He replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Here, Jesus assures them that salvation is completely possible for God. It's not possible for man. It's not possible for your riches. It's not possible for your possessions. But it's very possible for God. And I love that Jesus acknowledges the difficulty here. He says, what is impossible with man? It can't be done. But it's very possible with God. It's impossible for anyone to work, to save themselves. You cannot save yourself. It is impossible for you to be good enough. You can't, be, you can't modify your behavior enough. You will not be good enough on your most honest day of living. But God, turning the kingdom upside down, the narrative changes. With God a reversal happens. With God, what was impossible is very possible, and the response leaves the disciples to think hard about their own salvation. So Peter, being Peter, in verse 28, look, we have left, we had, and we followed you. Like, we're good, right, Jesus? That what you said back there, that was was for them. We're good, though, right? (laughs) I mean, this is just... Another contrast, like the disciples are saying, you called, we dropped our nets, we left everything we had. And then you see the rich man, the same calling, follow me. And he walks away, clinging on to the 
earthly possessions that he has. Now, admittedly, most of the disciples did not have what the rich man had in terms of like riches and possessions, but whether it was a lot or a little, the disciples gave everything to follow Jesus. Verses 29 and 30. So he said to them, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife or brothers or sisters, parents or children, because of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. Up to this point, we've sat under some hard truths from Jesus. But we also have a wonderful promise for the followers of Jesus. Jesus is promising the disciples, and you and I, that surrender, in surrender, you will find flourishing freedom. You will receive many times more in eternal life and in the age to come. Quoting from J.C. Ryle again, because he says things better than me, he says, The believer, the follower of Jesus, shall find in Christ a full equivalent for anything that he is obliged to give up for Christ's sake. He shall find such peace and hope and joy and comfort and rest in communion with the Father and the Son that his losses shall be more than counterbalanced by his gains. In short, the Lord Jesus Christ shall be more to him than property or relatives or friends. In other words, nothing can fill that Christ-sized hole in your heart quite like Jesus. Nothing. The disciples have to be hearing this and also echoing in their minds is the reality we don't have a place to lay our heads. What was that whole birds have nests, foxes have dens, but son of man won't have a place to lay their head? I mean, this eternal life, the, the gain here is not here on earth. When you fully surrender to a life devoted to Jesus, you will encounter trials. You will encounter hardships. You will encounter loss. Betrayal, tragedy, but you get Jesus. You get Jesus, and you will always get Jesus. He will never leave you. But the stuff, the possessions, the things, they were never meant to carry your hope. That was meant for Jesus, and He did it gladly and perfectly. Let me also note that this gain. is not the motive that we surrender to gain in this life. It is not the point. To surrender in response of in hopes of maybe gaining is still the result of an idolatrous heart. And no one knew this quite like the disciples. To surrender fully and to realize that life won't be easy, the disciples knew this. Most of them were martyred for the faith. Gruesome deaths, whether that be through crucifixion, isolation, or some other horrific way of dying. 
Now, I understand this is not the best sales pitch in the world. I get that. But the presence and eternity with Jesus is far better than any false idea that any possession, riches, or pleasure can bring you on this earth. Jesus is so much better. And get this, even if we lost it all in this life, and I'm not just saying that flippantly, I'm understanding the gravity of what I'm saying. If you were to lose it all, because of God and His gospel that must go forth, the gain you will receive in receiving eternal life and communion with the Father is so much better than what your wealth can bring or your things or your status or your career advancement. You and I get Jesus and we will always get Jesus. And that will never be taken from us. In the kingdom of God, total surrender is where we find ultimate freedom. So what do we do with this? There are two things that I want to point us towards in light of how to apply what we're sitting under. There's two pieces of application. And on the surface, the application can appear simple, but I don't want to confuse simple for clear. The call from Jesus is clear. And the application is different for the follower of Jesus and the person that does not follow Jesus. For the follower of Jesus, repent. Now, before we clam up too much and start to justify our sin away, in the reversal and upside-down way of the kingdom, turning from your sin, surrendering your heart fully to Jesus is the most freeing and flourishing thing you could do. Rather than be bound and gripped and mastered by the things that capture your heart and affections here on earth. Repent. Turn from your sin. Confess that sin and be welcomed by the loving arms of a gracious Father. And the beautiful thing about repentance for the struggling sinner like you and I is that in your wayward wandering, you could be wandering for years and years and years and all you have to do is turn around and you are met by the welcoming arms of a loving Father. You don't have to Work yourself back. You don't have to behave yourself back. You don't have to counteract your sins double the amount. You turn around. Be welcomed by the Father. Confess your sin and utter and total dependence on the mercy of the King. And in this season of Lent, in an effort to thin out areas in our life for the sake of thickening our communion with the Father, you and I are going to be confronted with some areas that could be potentially idolatrous. Maybe you're going to identify that the week we as a church fast from sleep, you're going to realize that your time and schedule is an idol. And Jesus isn't allowed to touch your sleep schedule. Or maybe this week, or the week that we do fast from unnecessary spending. I know for me, that was personally challenging. It was, it was challenging to realize that my heart was grasping after little gods in my unnecessary spending. Maybe you're going to have to let that fast go longer than a week so that you can detach your heart from the idol that that is. Or the week that we thin out distractions. 
We're quick, and I mean we're quick to numb our minds with things, with technology, with digital profiles and push notifications in an attempt to escape from some serious eternity-defining longings in our heart. Repent. Slay the idol instead of pampering it. In order to gain communion with Christ, what you gain in your losses is so much better when that payoff is Jesus. And for the person here that does not follow Jesus, my encouragement based off what I know in the scriptures and through the authority of scripture is to believe. Believe. Receive the call of salvation. It's not through your work, your doings, your efforts, but it's for the work, doings, and efforts that were already done for you. It was done and done so perfectly by Jesus who came humbly, lived perfectly, died sacrificially, rose victoriously, and is reigning eternally. To believe the gospel and to follow Jesus is to surrender. Surrender your heart to this king, the king who left his throne and dwelled among us and in worship and, and we can worship and dwell with him for all of eternity. You don't have to tidy yourself up, but like a child stuck in a pit of mud in your totally dependent heart, just lift your arms up, cry to him, and you'll be joyfully and willingly swept up in the caring arms of a loving and gracious father. God isn't scared of your mess. He isn't offended or insecure of your past. He isn't frustrated at your doubts, but rather he delights in your total dependence on him. Repent and believe. In the kingdom of God, total surrender is where we find ultimate freedom. We're going to respond in worship and for either side of the camp that you fall on, if you're a follower of Jesus who needs to repent or if you need to surrender fully to the rule and reign of God, we're here to, to walk with you. We want to take that step with you. And in response to God and His gospel, we will worship and join in with the host of angels that are already gathered and surrounded around the throne. And if you have that nudge, that prompting or whisper to respond to God's call, please find me, We'll have pastoral staff up here in the front after service. We would love nothing more than to walk with you in this step of salvation or repentance in the believer. Amen? Let's respond in worship. Thanks, Dan.